0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. One I'm not sure if we have anybody in the TALA room yet, but mm-hmm. welcome to those in TALA. Uh, my name is Professor Desmond I'm the co chair of the Medical and Health Humanities team here in the Long Room Hub. Uh, we're the oldest established collaborative grouping of any Irish university and we're the first to have interactive links with our clinical sites Uh, uh, so it really is quite exciting and indeed within our grouping we will have two we've got two smallish grants for uh, neurosciences related projects over the next year which will occur uh, next spring one around theater and drama and the neurosciences and the other one around aesthetics and design so uh, an exciting program, and just to give a quick advance warning about next month. Next month will revert to the Tuesday, and it will be Dr. Seamus on that. And he wrote a fairly celebrated book which hit the headlines last year about how we die in Ireland, but he's one of the most widely published clinicians in the medical humanities and peer review uh, journals. And he's going to be speaking about narrative medicine and its discontents. And indeed, he will have a very strong critique of narrative medicine. And as our discussant, we'll have Dr. Moirish Houston. who You may know from the Irish Times, but Dr. Morris Houston actually leads the module on narrative medicine. So we're expecting a few uh, academic sparks to fly. So this month, delighted to uh, welcome here uh, Dr. Deborah Thorpe, who's a visiting Marie Curie. And I hope there's no polls in the audience who will Fellow, and we're really delighted to have her. Again, the, the theme is self-explanatory. And as you may be aware, for those who are new here, um, what we try to do is to encourage a discussant, which is informal, up to five minutes, no slides, of somebody in a corresponding or complementary discipline. So, again, a medievalist and a professor of psychiatry is trying to bring the medical and humanities uh, together and I think this has been a very successful part of not maybe not quite interdisciplinarity but at least uh, multidisciplinarity in sessions. So delighted to welcome at the end of Deb's talk uh, Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity and attached to TALA, a uh, historian but also has uh, undertaken some research in the area of handwriting and psychiatric illness. So I think uh, really looking forward to this uh, rich and stimulating session. Thank you.
1: Is that
0: the remote control? I'll no.
1: just move the... Then, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll, Delete the... Yeah, they're
0: gone. Okay. Great. Is Great. it this one to go... Oh, sorry, to move. To move. No, I think... This, I'll just use that. Just yeah. the okay.
1: Great. Now that I've sorted out the technicalities, can everyone hear me okay? i like to move around a little bit. Um, so I'm delighted to be here, and I'd like to thank First The Hub for sponsoring my um, interdisciplinary research and allowing me hit to be here after three years at the University of York at the Centre for Chronic Diseases and Disorders, uh, and where before then I trained as a medieval paleographer, which for those of you who don't know the term, um, it's the analysis of the forms and features of medieval handwriting. So yes, today I'm going to talk about my research here at the Hub, which focuses on ageing and the lives and work of medieval scribes but also looking at bodies that weren't presumably young and healthy and looking at scribes who developed neurological disorders. Um, And handwriting can provide such insight into neurological disorders since it's such a complex activity that requires really fine uh, motor activity. So I'm going to talk about that. First of all, I'm going to introduce um, ageing and what I've discovered about ageing in the Middle Ages. Um, Then I'm going to move on to two specific case studies of scribes with neurological disorders that were both very different. And then I'm going to um, finish off with looking at how I'm starting to use um, digital methodologies to gain more insight into these diseases and disorders in handwriting. So first of all, I just wanted to explain why I'm looking at um, medieval scribes with diseases and disorders. Um, So as I've said, um, research into medieval scribes has been really proliferating within medieval studies as interest in the material text has prospered and kind of grown more lively over the course of the 20th century and moving into the 21st century. Um, But as you can see here in this image, this delightful German image of a scribe at work, um, you can see that he's wearing eyeglasses. um, And this is something that hasn't received um, the the kind of disordered or um, unhealthy body, perhaps, hasn't received a lot of um, attention within paleography and manuscript studies. So this is something that I set out to shed more light into. And we see a lot of evidence of medieval scribes wearing spectacles, as you might expect, um, with um, deterioration in eyesight as people get older. And um, So I'm going to talk a bit more about scribes getting older and the kind of diseases and disorders they developed. And so just to introduce old age in the Middle Ages, So it's commonly said to me, uh, why are you studying ageing scribes? Because, you know, didn't people die much earlier in the Middle Ages? Um, Well, people did die earlier, but if they did survive childhood and childbirth, if they were a woman, um, and especially if they were a scribe, which was a very, um, usually the the kind of trade of somebody from within the kind of what we consider to be the middle classes or the gentry. Perhaps the second son of a gentry, a member a gentleman, um, might go into the pr- business profession and become a scribe. And people did live up to their eighties and nineties. I'm finding examples of scribes living into their nineties. Um, it was generally quite a comfortable job, um, fairly well paid, although many scribes did complain that they weren't receiving enough pay that they thought they deserved. Um, And, yeah, so um, they did live longer than is commonly thought. Um, William Caxton, who some of you might know um, as the person who brought printing to England, um, having experienced it in Germany during his youth, where it was already prospering, when he was about 50, remarked that age creepeth on me daily and feebleth all my body, all the body. But that was despite... um, the fact that he was only 50 at that time and lived to be 70, or at least 70. And you can see an image of him there. And then we see in what's called the calendars of the letter books, which was the transactions of the City of London during the Middle Ages, the proceedings of the Court of the Common Council and the Court of the Eldermen, that people who were serving on duties were commonly being released from their jury service um, due to them reaching old age and old age was actually a commoner reason to be discharged from your jury duty than just ill health on its own so um, it reinforces this idea that there was an articulated re- recognition of the need to slow down there wasn't a kind of formalised retirement or pension system but people who were in like highly esteemed positions would go into a form of retirement and would commonly receive some kind of um, to kind of continue their lives in relative comfort. Um, we see from the records of St. Boniface, um, who died aged 79 in the 8th century, which quite, seems quite remarkable. He asked Bishop Daniel of Winchester for a book in which the six prophets are contained all in one volume in clear letters written in full. And his reasonings were, you could not give me a greater comfort in my old age with my failing sight, fading sight, I cannot read well writing which is small and filled with abbreviations. And this was really common in the Middle Ages. You can see here um, a manuscript book from about 100 years later, which is clearly in absolutely tiny handwriting, which would be very difficult to read if you were experiencing any problems with your um, close reading. Here we see a really interesting image of old age um, with a crutch warming their feet by the fire. Um, Intriguingly, um, there has been an interesting relationship between the reader and the book here. Um, The reader has clearly been interacting with the image and has rubbed off um, the ink on the face and the hands and the feet. Um, Not quite sure what was going on here, but you can see the depictions of old age in a medieval manuscript book. Um, And I presented here a quote from Bernardino of Siena, who um, describes the process of getting older as as follows. You longed to pass through its gate. You desired to reach it. You feared you might not attain it. But once you arrived, you begin to moan. Everybody wants to reach old age, but nobody wants to be old. And that, I think, is a sentiment that we kind of still feel today. And um, here's another great image, this time of a woman, uh, a nun who's clearly reached old age here and I'm not sure how well you can see it here but it's wonderfully detailed, you can see the wrinkles in her skin, it's one of the most beautiful manuscript images that I've seen um, in terms of its detail from a French manuscript of the 15th century. And um, so, um, here's a quote from Gabriel Zerbi of Verona, um, again describing old age in the 15th century, and he writes, The strength of old people likewise ebbs away, and their bodies grow heavy with cold. Diseases forming ranks leap all around them, a quote from Juvenal. As they say, there are more than 300 perils and uncertain diseases of all kinds, which attack the old, so that one may declare that there are as many of them as there are nations of the world. And he continues to talk a bit more about loss of eyesight, which is something that I'm going to talk, to, talk about in relation to scribes. And he writes, when therefore the colour which exists in the act of vision has lights joined with it, it will greatly alter things too close, so that they can see nothing else. That which is remote will be, will be more within their sight. Wherefore, the visual impression will be weaker and more fleeting. As the poet says, quoting from the um, uh, Maxima, Maximianus, If I read books, the letter's split in two. The page I knew seems large, larger than it was. I seem to see a bright light through the clouds. The clouds themselves are brighter within my eyes. Daylight is gone, though I still live. Who will deny that hell is fenced with opaque darkness? And here is uh, one of my favourite images of a person wearing spectacles. Um, the common type of spectacles that you find in the Middle Ages, I think were um, first found in the 13th century. Um, and there are examples of these spectacles surviving. There's a really good example of um, a man, uh, an early printed book that has the impression of a pair of spectacles inside it. Though the spectacles themselves don't actually survive. So we can see the evidence of readers using spectacles to, uh, in order to read. And now I want to provide a kind of defense of medieval scribes. Um, medievalists often think about scribes in terms of the wrongs that they did to medieval authors. Authors were commonly um, sort of protesting against the type of disservice that they saw that scribes did to their texts. Uh, misrepresenting them, miscopying them, medieval authors having to go in and correct them, but what we sometimes forget, I think, is the really hard life that medieval scribes had. It was a very physical, painstaking job, physically very hard upon the body and also the mind. So, as Derek Pearsall has said, the focus on of work on medieval tra- tra- textual transmission has often been on the sufferings of authors at the hands of scribes. But here we see um, something called a colophon, which is what medieval scribes used to kind of express themselves at the end of a text that they copied. And it usually um, contains some kind of comment on the hard work that they'd actually done. So here a scribe has written, he who doesn't know how to write thinks it isn't hard work. And this was a problem that scribes were having, um, that people who didn't understand the processes of writing were often kind of um, saying derogatory things about them. So the, the day of a medieval scribe um, could be very long, and especially for professional scribes who were doing this to earn a living. And the conditions could be very cold. Um, medieval monastic scribes often worked basically outdoors. Um, it's, it was really, really cold and difficult on their fingers. And the posture could induce backache, stomach pain, hand cramp, as the, as the scribe was bent over a sloped writing desk. And you can see this here from a 12th century image. The scribe kind of hunched over his writing desk, which is set at a 45 degree angle. Um, and here is a poem that's, that many of you might know, because um, it was translated by Seamus Heaney. Um, Colm Colm Keel, the Scribe, is my Irish pronunciation right on that, (laughs) almost there, Um, so in Heaney's translation um, of the 11th century poem, my hand is cramped from pen work, my quill has a tapered point, its bird mouth issues issues blue dark, beetle spark of ink, wisdom keeps welling in streams from my fine drawn, sallow hand. River run on the vellum of ink from green-skinned holly. My small runny pen keeps going through books, through thick and thin, to enrich the scholar's holding penwork that cramps my hands. And we know from studies of medieval scribal writing that since they wrote on these 45-degree angle slopes, by the time you reach the end of the page that you were writing, your, your hand would be at a very difficult angle indeed, and it would be very, very uncomfortable at that point. Yes, and just to emphasise this, um, this um, carving um, from the Victoria and Albert Museum shows the four evangelists um, at different points of scribal writing. Um, So Matthew is sharpening his quill up there in the left hand corner, top left. Luke is writing the words, Mark is reloading the quill, and John is contemplating and correcting. So it shows the physical but also the mental drains of scribal writing. And, and nowhere is this best, um, better emphasised than in the 15th century poem by uh, poet um, Thomas Hockleave, who was a clerk of the Privy Seal working for Henry V. He had a mental breakdown around the Battle of Agincourt. Um, and in these poems, he writes about the process of writing and how difficult it is. So he says, But we labour in travailless stillness, We stoop and stare upon the shaper's skin and keep mut our song and word us in. So he talks about that kind of degree of mental concentration that the medieval scribe has to undertake. But also his life really um, emphasises that the life of a medieval scribe, especially a professional, was also stressful and hectic. The reason he had his mental breakdown and consequently had a huge um, four-year gap in his career was because during the Battle of Agincourt, he was writing so many letters for, the, for Henry V that he just couldn't cope anymore. Um, he was constantly being asked to write and redraft things and it was very, very hectic as he writes about in his poetry autobiographically. Autobiogra- um, so now I've talked a little bit about the context of medieval scribes and the aging process. I want to kind of explain a bit more about my project here at, um, at the Long Room Hub. Um, it's a really collaborative project, so I'm trying to create as many links within um, the university and beyond as I can. And the project's called Old Hands, a paleographical study of ageing of and medieval and early modern scribes. So the first aim of the project is to better understand the paleographical features associated with normal physiological ageing. And that's both in modern and medieval handwriting. But in terms of my project, I want to establish what kind of distortions we can see in medieval handwriting over time, over the course of a a person's life. I want to determine what distortions are attributable to conditions such as Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease and stroke And I'll go on to kind of mention some of the more common other tremor conditions as well as I've progressed with this this talk. But then, because this is really focused on the lives of scribes, I want to kind of analyse the practical effects of these distortions on the productivity of a medieval scribe and the nature of their work. And then secondly, going back to what I've just said about medieval scribes, I want to better understand the lives of the scribes across their potential span. So instead of focusing on just the young and healthy scribes, I want to go right up to the elderly scribe and learn a bit more about what they were doing at that point in their lives. Um, So I want to ask what type of working life could an ageing medieval scribe expect if he was not affected by a disease or disorder? What was the practical impact of age-related diseases and disorders on the working lives of scribes? What are the differences between the writing distortions caused by different neurological conditions and others that we might see in medieval writing, such as uh, handwriting distortions due to the cold, repetitive strain, as I mentioned, poor writing material, because writing surfaces really vary, arthritis, negligence, um, and also eyesight loss. And then lastly, could the lifestyle of a medieval scribe itself be the cause of certain types of diseases and disorders? And I'm, go- I'm going to go on to dis- discuss dystonia and writer's cramp as conditions that are um, associated with uh, certain types of activity. And so the first case study that I want to talk about is the very um, beautifully named Tremulous Hand of Worcester. Um, he um, he's named that by historians because we still haven't managed to actually establish his identity, so we don't have a name for this scribe at the moment. So, as the name suggests, he was working in Worcester, probably at Worcester Cathedral. Um, he was probably a monk at the cathedral, or at least a priest associated with the cathedral. Um, and he was working around the 13th century, um, probably around the kind of beginning of the 13th century. And so I'm discussing the research that I published with my colleague Jane Arty, who's a consultant neurologist who specialises in movement disorders. So really this was the first output of the the research project I was doing at York. So here I'm presenting an image of uh, the handwriting of the tremulous Hand of Worcester. Um, The main handwriting that you see here um, the main body of the text is not him. That's an earlier scribe um, of the late uh, Anglo-Saxon period. But the annotations that you see around the edges of the page are the tremulous hand of Worcester. And you might be able to see there the kind of regular tremor that's developing in the handwriting. And the two inset images are both the tremulous hand of Worcester at different times in his life. We don't have a very distinct, um, definite chronology for the tremulous hand of Worcester since we can't date all of the handwriting samples, Um, but at the beginning of his career when we see here that the tremor was um, really um, hardly even noticeable in this one, um, he was writing in Middle English so his job at that point was to translate older, old English texts into Middle English, So that was what he was doing, we think, at the beginning of his career. And then as he went through his career, which we don't know how long it was, he switched from translating into Middle English into Latin and French. And you can see here at the bottom inset, the tremor has worsened. Um, It's much more visible and it gives it that kind of distinct characteristic that has enabled scholars to pick out his handwriting in over 20 manuscript books which is quite remarkable for the period. Um, And analysing the script with uh, my colleague Jane, um, we found that the tremor was generally had quite a fine amplitude, um, so it's very kind of um, fine in its um, distortion, especially downward strokes. Regular frequency, you can see those tremors, those waves are very regular. It seems to be quite a high-frequency tremor. Um, And it has a unidirectional axis, which means that, say, on the letter O, um, it always goes across, um, I think it would be um, 2 o'clock to uh, 7 o'clock, that kind of direction, which is a feature of essential tremor condition. Other tremors have a different type of axis. And one of the features that was really interesting about the tremulous hand of Worcester is that he. he experiences vast fluctuations in the extent to which his tremor affected his handwriting. So here you can see an excerpt from um, a line, I think it was about the tenth line of the text, where he finishes the te- tenth line, and then the eleventh line, that handwriting is much less affected by the tremor. Uh, and a scholar who'd worked on the tremulous hand of um hypothesized that he probably went away and had a rest at that point. And Dr Alti suggested to me that he could have gone away and had a drink at that point as well. Um, mm-hmm. Medieval scribes were drinking weak alcohol throughout the day. Um, it probably was part of the rest process. And essential tremor does uh, respond to alcohol consumption. Small amounts of alcohol could ameliorate the effect of the tremor there, but that's just speculative. But it's an interesting thought. And we compared that kind of regular tremor with a handwriting sample from a patient um, from Dr Alty's clinic who also has essential tremor. As you can see, the handwriting is very different. Modern handwriting is completely different from medieval script. But we see that on those downward strokes, the tremor is also quite regular, has a kind of similar axis Uh, and has a similar kind of amplitude, although it's a bit more pronounced. So it helped us to kind of come to the conclusion that he may have had essential tremor. But we also came up with a kind of list of criteria in um, reaching the differential diagnoses. So essential tremor was the condition that we thought he most likely had, but we also considered dystonic tremor and primary writing tremor in the differential diagnosis. Um, So we considered features such as tremor amplitude and frequency, as I mentioned, changes over time, whether there was any deterioration in the handwriting, alcohol response, rest response, and other features. And also one of those features that we considered, which was, again, kind of using the historical skills and the analysis of the content of the writing, was um, relating to eye problems. So the Tremulous Hand of Worcester himself was very interested in medical remedies. Um, one of his kind of primary interests was annotating Old English collections of medical remedies um, and picking out things that he was particularly interested in. So um, it's been noted that he w- he annotated eight examples of remedies for soreness of eyes, um, seven for dimness of eyes, and. There were other problems with the eyes that he was annotating in the medi- medieval uh, medieval recipes in those texts but um, so we speculated that he could have been particularly interested in eye problems, which might correlate with what we found in the sense that his handwriting became bigger as he grew, grew older and slightly um, kind of more disjointed and kind of less he didn't put the serifs on the, end of his, um, on the end of his long strokes. And there were other things that led us to kind of speculate, speculate that his eyesight might have deteriorated. But in the end, we decided not to consider that in the differential diagnosis because he was also interested in a vast array of different medical recipes, such as um, uh, kidney stones, uh, snake bites, and a range of different things. But there are examples of medieval handwriting that are really affected by possibly um, eyesight deterioration. So this is a handwriting sample from a 15th century scribe from, um, who was working in Dublin city during the 15th century um, called Nicholas Bellew. And he, his handwriting, this is it, it's, um, at age 71, I believe, so this is towards the end of his life. Um, and his handwriting became kind of bigger, looser, and he had more problems with sticking to the straight line. He probably wasn't ruling the line, which many medieval scribes did, um, but he kind of, his writing dips at certain points, and you can see it here in more detail as there are dips and waves in the script, and this is seen a lot in medieval scribes who have been suggested by scholars that they had problems with their eyesight. Including John Gower, who lived to be um, very, very old and and did eventually go blind. How much time have I got? Okay, so I've got time to talk about my second case study. And he is the scribe that I'm currently working on in collaboration with Dr. Alty and an expert in medieval Latin texts from Fordham University. Um, And this was the scribe called Bernard Blancard. He was a notary scribe from medieval Marseille, and you can see a beautiful picture of the city that I had the pleasure of visiting to do this archival research. Um, And his handwriting by the end of his life was an absolute mess. It really deteriorated to the point where it's considerably distorted by some kind of neurological disorder. This is his handwriting age 70. Um, Blancard was fairly unremarkable in terms, of, in terms of his scribal career. He was a medieval notary. His job was transacting debt, dowry payments, contracts, all those kind of day-to-day things in medieval Marseille. But he was remarkable in that his career lasted at least 46 years. Um, not many of us today can say that our careers last that long. Um, But in that time he was working as a notary um, and reached a very kind of highly esteemed position within the society. And so we see the later example of his script. Um, It's affected by tremor, although I'll speak more on that um, because there are variations in the degree to which the handwriting is affected by tremor. We see ill-defined individual strokes and letters this is a very um, cursive, fluent script—the script of a medieval businessman. So it was written to, in a, with, you know, with speed. Um, it wasn't meant to be read by anyone except Blancard and his other contemporary scribes. Um, but we would expect a lot more kind of fluency and confidence in his strokes than we see here. Um, the individual downward strokes in letters like N and M, which we call minims. Are very, very ill defined. Um, they run into each other and really interfere with the legibility of the script. Um, we see uneven ink weighting. So you can see here um, the script pro- um, proceeds from being very heavy and um, the, the weighting of, the, of the, the quill is considerable and then it becomes very spidery and thin. And this is a really consistent feature with his older examples of his handwriting. But this is his script, age 48, um, and it's really, the the tremor is much less um, apparent in this script. The tremor is intruding on letters like, long letters like H and L, but it's still quite low amplitude, um, and... You know, it's perfectly legible to other scribes at this point. And by this time, Blancard had already risen to a very, very kind of um, established position within society. So um, some people have asked me why would he have been able to continue in this career? But there were only around 20 20 notaries in the city of Marseille at this time. He was very expert in drafting these kind of contracts. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had all of his connections within the city and as I said, the script is not a book hand that's meant for a patron or a paying kind of market. This is a workaday day business script. But we notice when we analyse the script that unlike with the Tremulous Hand of Worcester, the um, frequency is very irregular, the amplitude is irregular, the axis of the, fre- of the tremor is irregular, so it has completely different features from the Tremulous Hand of Worcester script. And from collaboration with Jane LT, um we decided that the features really fit in with the condition of dystonia, which co- causes um, spasms and uh, cramps in the hand, uh, focal dystonia, so concentrated in one part of the body, which can be task-specific, so it can be exacerbated and brought on by the process of writing. And so here you see an example of Blancard's script at age 70, so um, the top half of the script you can see there's quite a lot of variation in the thickness and the weighting of strokes, um, which is consistent with posturing, which is the kind of cramps and spasms and kind of um, uneven pressure perhaps on the quill, but we also are investigating the potential that um, the speed of the quill might have also affected this at this point. We see a lot of very spidery script at this point. It gets worse and worse. The circle here is showing a very spider-y, spider-y, spidery script that's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish individual strokes and letters. And here you can see as well at the bottom a person aged 56 years old with dystonic tremor. You can see that the tremor is visible in the script, but the dominant feature is this problem with differentiating individual letters Uh, and also some of the uneven pressure. Obviously the person here is using a ballpoint pen rather than a a quill, which is something that we're investigating as well. So in the the publication that that Jane and I um, published in Brain, we suggested that it's difficult to measure tremor frequency from a historical document. As we cannot know the quill speed during writing, Um, Knowing the frequency of the tremor is very important in differentiating one tremor from the other. Um, So as we showed in this um, table from our publication, essential tremor um, commonly has a frequency of 8 to 12 Hertz, whereas dystonic tremor has a tremor of 7 Hertz or lower, and primary writing tremor is 5 to 7 Hertz. So, we wanted to investigate whether we could find out a bit more about those dynamic features of medieval writing. Being able to find out a bit more about the speed of writing and the kind of rhythm and flow of medieval writing. So, um, this led on to the kind of digital humanity side of the project, which was really a bit of fun, but actually it has really given us a lot of insight into medieval style writing processes. We thought, how could we recover some of these dynamic features of handwriting when obviously the medieval scribes are not around anymore and we only have these static samples of scripts? So we decided to develop a digitising quill. So I was working within the electronics department and there were a lot of people there that really wanted to get involved in this kind of technology. Um, we wanted to develop a a kind of quill that would capture some of these dynamic features of writing such as as the speed of writing, um, the acceleration and deceleration of strokes, the writing flow, and also the rhythm of writing. When does the quill need to be reloaded with ink and when does the quill need to be sharpened? And and these kind of debates are being held um, really kind of actively within medieval studies How long did it take a scribe to produce a single paragraph or a single page? And there really haven't been any conclusive answers because it's really difficult to recover that kind of information. We don't know how often scribes stopped. We don't know how many hours they worked in a day, etc. But going into the kind of minutiae of how many strokes could be produced within a minute or in a second, that's possibly easier to gain more insight into that. So the aim of developing the digitizing quill was was to analyze the impact of writing conditions on the processes of writing, such as environmental conditions, especially temperature, I talked a bit about cold and writing. The writing surface, the posture, and writing technologies, what type of quill was being used, is parchment being used or is paper being used. Parchments and quills have a very kind of natural relationship with each other, they both are, are, one's an animal skin and another one is a part of an animal, whereas writing with a quill on paper is not such a natural relationship. So um, there's a real smoothness of writing with a quill on parchment. We wanted to capture some of that. We wanted to produce some kind of data relating uh, relating to the dynamic process of writing. And then complementing our study of the kind of static features of writing, what we can see in those digitizations of medieval script, such as ink distribution, how evenly is the ink distributed throughout the stroke, stroke thickness, the size of writing, and the shape of letters. Let's get through. Yeah. So here we have the digitizing quill in action. So I showed you on the previous um, slide, you can see the quill. So it's a quill that's been picked out by a calligrapher. This is the quill that she was going to use in the writing exercise. And rather, it was a little bit of a hack. So you can see that sellotapes onto it is a microsensor made by Polhemus. It's incredibly expensive technology, but it can measure writing processes or movements within the kind of nearest millimeter and you can measure the movement away from the writing surface as well as those individual writing movements. So um, we enacted the involvement of Sue Houghton, who is a master calligrapher. For two years she was involved in the process of reproducing an entire Bible along with a team of five other scribes. So she's the closest we've got to a medieval scribe. And you can see here she's writing on parchment on that 45-degree angle um, slope. And the microsensor, which is attached to the quill, is in- interacting with a receptor in that grey box. And then off-screen, the, the results of the digitisation is being captured on an iPad through a programme that my colleagues in electronics um, wrote for me. And so really she's reproducing those kind of medieval writing processes that we can see in my favourite ever depiction of a medieval scribe from the Bibliotheque Nationale in a um, manuscript there. So you can see the scribe on his writing desk. Um, you can see the device that's being used to hold the parchment down onto the uh, writing desk. You can see his ink at the side. So she's, she's the closest that we have to that process. I was going to show you a a YouTube video, but I think I'll show it you at the end if we've got time. Um, But Sue's writing processes here, you can see, are being recorded by the iPad. Um, I think one of the most unexpected processes of recovering this um, kind of information was that you can see the green lines there. The green lines represent every time Sue raised her quill from the writing surface. So you can see her putting the quill onto the writing surface and breaking it off. But here, perhaps unexpectedly, I hadn't envisaged that we might see her re- reloading her quill. Every time she had to go back to the quill, uh, so sorry, back to the part, she was being tracked, um, and then she was going back to the writing surface. But we were able to recapture the speed of writing for every single stroke that she was putting onto the parchment. And that was just a brief introduction to that particular element of the project. I just wanted to plug on the 18th of January, um, my colleague from Electronics um, who specialises in hand movements within a medical technology context, we're going to talk about how um, how we're analysing that information from Sue's Digitising Quill. So that's on the 18th of January, so that's one for the diary. But having recorded this kind of dynamic information, we're hoping that we'll gain more insight into other types of medieval scripts. When I started the project, my only case study was the tremulous Hand of Worcester, who's known to almost every medieval historian. And now we've got Bernard Blancard, who had this amazing 46-year career. But on my computer now, I have a folder of over 15 different scribes whose script shows evidence for the interference of some kind of movement disorder, which I think is quite remarkable. So we want to apply these kind of collaborations and technologies to gain more insight into the ways in which scribes' work was um, interfered with by deteriorations in their health, um, but also how that kind of um, health problem or movement disorder should be considered in relation to the career of a scribe. Was it a disability? Did it affect their kind of, um, the execution of their duties if they were a professional scribe? The career of Bernard Blancard would suggest that it had a very minimal impact on his career, although it would have been an, an, an enormous kind of frustration to him. Um, you can see here on the left hand side, this was a scribe from Westminster Cathedral. Um, So his script um, is preserved within the archives of Westminster Cathedral, and it's again considerably impacted by a tremor condition. And then also I just wanted to kind of um, mention that this has been a very male-centred project talk at the moment, and I'm also looking into women, what happened to ageing women within the medieval period. Um, In an English context, which is what my research has been focused on, women weren't often the scribes of medieval texts. But in a German context, medieval nuns were producing texts, um, and there are vast amounts of surviving medieval texts by women. And we can see evidence of women writing into their 70s and 80s, so that's something that I want to look at. Um, But yeah, I think I'll end the talk now. I think I've reached my 40 minutes, so thank you very much for your attention.